Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 20, verse 1, through chapter 21, verse 7. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. In chapter 17 and 18, we've had the renewal of the promise of the birth of Isaac. In chapter 19, we had the account of God graciously rescuing Lot for Abraham's sake from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and now we come to these words. Genesis 20, beginning at verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. 
Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you have given us wondrous promises about the effectiveness of your word, that your word accomplishes what you send it to do. As we love those promises and respond to them, We also confess that that effectiveness is not something that we control or manipulate. And so we pause now to pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit, asking you to be at work among us, illuminating your word that we might rightly understand it, that we might receive it by faith, and that we might behold our Lord Jesus Christ and all that you have done for us in him. We pray that you would do this for us, through this the preaching of your holy word. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I think I have mentioned a time or two from the pulpit, I have a bit of an odd hobby of I like to read books about geopolitics, warfare, governments, international relations, these sorts of things. This is a thrilling introduction. I know I'm going to get to a point. I'm reading a book right now called On Grand Strategy. And it is a book written by a professor who taught for decades at Yale University for those who were anticipating or moving toward being at leadership in the government and in the military. 
And in this class, he assigned his students to read War and Peace by Tolstoy. Now, I have not read War and Peace. I have no intention of doing so. But the students all read it. And it is famously difficult to read. And this professor was struck by the fact that many of his students were actually finding themselves enjoying the book. And he asked them at one point, why? Why, What is this doing for you? Why are you enjoying reading about the Napoleonic Wars so long ago when you're anticipating dealing with such modern and contemporary things? What do you get out of reading about Prince Andre and Natasha and Pierre? And they paused, and this professor claims that that three of them simultaneously said, they make us feel less lonely. That there's something about reading and studying history that can have the effect of reminding us in a positive way that there is nothing new. That there are cycles and patterns to history. There are things we are facing and going through that have been faced before and will be faced again. And then that experience of reading of those experiences of others long before us, there can be a bit of a feeling of, ah, I'm not so lonely anymore. In a sense, we face this side by side with those who have come before well, I want to set before you this morning that what the point this professor was making about history in general, making us feel less lonely, is one of the ways we can understand what covenant history is doing. It's one of the ways we can understand what the history of redemption is doing in Scripture, why God gives us all of these stories, all of these accounts. There are theological truths in these accounts that could be said very briefly. But God, in his wisdom, gives these things to us in the form of story, with real human beings and all the things they are going through. And one of the reasons he does so is that you might feel less lonely. Now, I know some of you are suspicious of the word feel. You shouldn't be. But just in case you are, when I say feel, I don't mean something in the realm of -of out-of-control emotions. What I mean is that you might know that you are not alone. That you might know it in your gut, in your bones, in who you are as a felt experience of life. God's word comes to us with one of the many things it is doing, giving us that conviction. I want us to read Genesis 20 and the first part of chapter 21 this morning in that light. We're going to do this in three steps. We have before us a story. We are going to see first the cosmic scope of the story. Why cosmic scope? Well, I wanted C's. So the cosmic scope of the story. Second, the, the Christ shape of the story. And then third, the covenant richness of the story. First, the cosmic scope. Cosmic scope. Okay, you can roll your eyes at it. It's fine. What do I mean by cosmic scope? Really big picture. All of the world, all of humanity, all of reality is in view in this story we have before us. Well, okay, hold on. Let's, let's look at the story first. The cosmic scope. What is happening? Well, as I said before the scripture reading, we just received the renewal of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah that a son was going to be born in their old age. This was a renewal of the promise God had given them of many descendants. That, was, that is what just happened. We had the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. For Abraham's sake, Lot is rescued. Now, we come to these words that Abraham is journeying in someone else's land, sojourn in Gerar. Verse 2, 
And Abraham said, to Sa- said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Now, at this point, uh, Moses writing this is assuming you remember a previous account. Because at this point, he's like skipping steps. What's going on? Well, we're remembering, whoa, this happened before. Genesis 12, Abraham is in Egypt. He's afraid that Pharaoh is going to kill him to take Sarah. And so he lies and says, Sarah is my sister to protect them from that happening. And now when we read this here, we know what's going to happen. Abimelech takes her. Sarah is in the house of Abimelech. We're going to look at the details in a moment. A bunch of things happen where God persuades Abimelech to give Sarah back to Abraham. That all happens. And then we're told in chapter 21, God gives Abraham and Sarah, in faithfulness to his promises, the birth of the son Isaac. We can summarize the story. Right before everything is about to be fulfilled, Abraham and Sarah are threatened in the land of Abimelech. God protects them. God gives the birth of Isaac. However, there are some strange things in all of this. Many have pointed out chapters, whole chapters have been given to describing the promises, the promise of a son. The promise has come multiple times, three main passages in fact, whole stories about how the promise was received or not received. And then when it comes time for the promise to finally be fulfilled, we get one verse. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. There's a pointed focus, very brief, on the fulfillment of the promise. And in between those, you got this whole story of God's dealings with Abimelech. Here is what I mean by cosmic scope. Let's look at what happens in this account with Abimelech. And I want to encourage you, as I say many times, let yourself be surprised by it. Let yourself notice things that are a little bit strange. Abraham says of Sarah, she is my sister. So Abimelech takes Sarah to be his wife. And we read in verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream. As though that's just sort of a thing that was happening for Abimelech. Abimelech somehow knows This is God speaking to him. How does he know? I have no idea. But God is able to make him know. And he knows this is the creator speaking to him. God says to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Abimelech has a conversation. First of all, we're told, uh, big picture, verse 4, Abimelech had not approached her. We don't know why yet, though we find out later it's because Abimelech has been sick. So something has been placed upon their household, and that's presumably why he has not yet approached Sarah. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Notice Abimelech's concern for justice and righteousness. He says, he acknowledges that they are innocent, and he he seems to know something about the Lord, about the Creator, that he is not one who would kill an innocent people. And so Abimelech here is expressing true theology about the Creator, about the one who was speaking to him in this dream. And then he gives a defense of why what he did was righteous. Verse 5, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Abimelech says, I didn't know she was his wife. And then, what rich language. 
What rich covenantal language. Integrity of my heart, innocence of my hands. Not just the thing I did wasn't wrong, but integrity speaks of the whole person. And that what he did was with a whole person orientation toward the good, toward how things ought to be. Then, here is the really fun part. I hope, I, I hope these things, that it can surprise you when you're reading it. Here's the really fun part. What does God say to him? Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Now, as a good Calvinist, what are you supposed to say? Everything you do is tainted by sin. Now, okay, when it comes to earning something from God, that is true. Nothing can earn something from God. That theology is all true. But don't filter everything through that true thing. There is also a way in which, in the way of the covenant, in the way of crying out to the Lord, that the Lord honors that which is directed toward him as being in meaningful ways good. And God affirms to Abimelech that you did this in the integrity of your heart. Indeed, God says, it is I who kept you from sinning. Meaning, this sickness that's been placed upon them is something God did to graciously protect Abimelech from this bad thing that was going to happen because Abraham had deceived him. Then, the rest of the picture of the story is of God's sovereignty over all of this. God says he has been directing what has been happening in Abimelech's house. Abimelech then, recognizing what has happened, gives Sarah back. He lavishes wealth upon Abraham to make up for what he had done in taking Sarah. He gives Sarah wealth as part of her vindication that it would be clear that nothing happened, that he had not approached her. In fact, he shows concern for this, that you were vindicated in the, in, before others. He shows more concern for Sarah's honor, well, really, than Abraham did. Now, we only have so much time here. We have to get to a second point. What's the point here? What do we notice? Abimelech from the nations, from Canaan, is affirmed as in many ways being righteous and having integrity. God's sovereign dealings are at work in the house of Abimelech. God is doing things in this Canaanite nation in a way that very much affirms their righteousness and that is actually protecting them. In fact, God is protecting this Canaanite nation, seemingly righteous, from the foolishness of the line of promise in Abraham. What I simply want to point out, what was the name of the point? The cosmic scope. Genesis has been showing us over and over God's dealings with all of the world. God's dealings with all of the nations. God's concern for the nations. Remember Melchizedek, high priest of God most high, not an Israelite. God's dealings with all the nations of the world. Why? Because the nations are the point. He has called Abraham for the sake of the nations, that he would be a blessing to the nations, for the sake of his mission to the nations. God's purpose all along is the whole world. And he gives you these interesting, challenging, I think in the movement of the story, he gives us these fun examples of people from the nations getting it. Being true God-fearers, having correct theology, being oriented toward God faithfully. And in many ways, Abraham needs to learn from them. All of this, this event, what is happening, is for the sake of the nations. All that was happening that seemingly threatened Abraham and Sarah, 
I'm using the word fun perhaps a bit too much because we need to feel that threat. Why does Abraham do all this in the first place? He's afraid. He's afraid something's going to happen to them. They're going to get in, in the, they are weak in the midst of all these powerful Canaanite nations, and he is fearful that they're going to be lost in that. They're going to die in that. That the lion's going to be cut off in that. And what this account shows, again, cosmic scope, is that everything happening in the nations is for the sake of God's purposes. There is no chaos that God's people are caught up in. God is sovereign over all of it. And this must form how the church relates to the world in every time and place. This must make us feel less lonely. It has always been the case that the church's place among the nations seems fearful and weak. And it is always the case that God is at work in all of it for the sake of his promises. The cosmic scope of the story. Second, the Christ shape of the story. When I said in my anecdotal introduction, it makes us feel less lonely, that way of reading a story could lead in all sorts of dangerous ways. Where now it becomes a whole lot of, look how we are just like Abraham and Sarah. We need to pause here for a moment to talk about this. You know, I've told you, one of my goals in this series is not just that we would learn about these particular texts, but that we would be formed in how we read Scripture as a whole. One of our great dangers in how we read Scripture, especially the stories, is the way in which we want to relate to what is going on. We want to be the hero. We want to be Abraham. We want to be Sarah. So, newsflash for you. You're not the hero. And we must read the story with that in mind. Who am I? Who do I identify with? Who is me in this account? If the point is to make me feel less lonely, what is, what is going on here? Who is that speaking of? Abraham is the recipient of the promise through which the lion would come, who would defeat the serpent and conquer evil. You are not that. Sarah is the great queen mother of the line of promise in the line of Eve, pointing forward to Mary. You are not that. If anything, well, here's really how we should look at this in, in the shape of the story of Israel. At this point in the story, my ancestors were, well, they probably weren't even there yet. I don't know how the history works. The historians can correct me here. But my ancestors at some point were going to be worshiping trees and rocks in northern Europe. That's who I am in this story. Who am I? I am the lost nations. We should ask in every account, not who am I in this and what should I do or not do, but we ask, what is God doing for his people through this account? What is God doing for Israel through Abraham and Sarah and Abimelech? What is God doing for the nations through Abraham and Sarah? What is God doing ultimately for me through this account? And that is how we then can arrive at what I'm calling the Christ shape of the story. There is a great danger in wanting to boil down the stories in Scripture to a matter of individual spiritual experience. We want to boil it down. What was Abraham going through? What was Sarah going through? How does that relate to what I go through? And now how does God speak to me in the midst of that being what I go through? 
And if we do that, everything feels really relevant, and it feels really convicting, and it can feel really good in lots of ways. But it ultimately is oppressive and destructive because we can't be like the hero. We are not able to. And it turns out we don't experience and feel things the same way. If this is narrated as a matter of felt experience, now we all have the oppressive anxiety of, well, I don't feel that. I haven't had God speak to me in a dream. I have not had these sorts of things happen. And then we either triple down on trying to make it happen, or we try to talk like it does happen so people are persuaded. I think a lot of you know how this goes. It can feel relevant and convicting in a good way, but it's ultimately oppressive. Because it's ultimately not the gospel. We must ask, what is God doing in this story, in this history, for his people? And that is the path along which the text speaks to us. So, let us ask. I've said the question about 23 times now. What is God doing for us through these events? Well, what is the big picture of the story? But that the line of promise, if we're going to say, all right, who I relate to is people worshiping trees and rocks somewhere in northern Europe, what is happening is that God is through these events working to rescue those people, to rescue people like Abimelech. He is through these events bringing about his plan of redemption to save people from all the nations. And the serpent, the dragon of Genesis 3, knows this. And story after story in the scriptures is of evil represented by the serpent, attacking that line of promise to keep this from happening. And that is exactly what is happening in this account. When Abram and Sarah are sojourning in the land of Gerar, there is a chance here for that line of promise to get attacked. The serpent knows that one day the child will be born to that family who would defeat him, and he wants to stop that from happening. And here is his last-ditch effort. Well, there's going to be many more, actually. But for Isaac, this is his last effort to stop that from happening. Instead, what happens? In all of those things that are attempts to stop it from happening, it instead continues to move forward. Through all the things that evil does to try to keep the child from being born simply serves the purpose of God's promises. In fact, here's one of the great thrilling things in this chapter, is that all three of the main promises God gave Abraham back in Genesis 12 have glimmers of fulfillment. God promised Abraham land. But what does Abimelech say to Abraham in the land of Canaan? My land is yours. Live where your heart pleases. Abraham receives the beginning of the promise of land. God had promised descendants. Now, hold on. We know this is where Isaac's going to be born, so of course there's the promise being fulfilled. This is where I almost wish we had stopped at the end of chapter 20 with God opening the wombs of everyone in Abimelech's household. God showing his sovereignty over the birth of children and him doing that in Abimelech's household as a foreshadowing of what he's about to do for, for Abraham and Sarah through Isaac. That is, the promise of children is being fulfilled. And what was the third promise? Blessing to the nations. When Abimelech is sick, God tells Abimelech, ask Abraham to pray for you because he is a prophet and Abraham praying for you is what God will use to heal him. And this is what happens. Abraham is the means by which Abimelech is blessed, despite all of his foolishness. 
It is Abraham's prayer that God uses to bring healing to Abimelech's household. Do you see the intensity of that drama? It is the attack upon the line of promise, and through that story of an attack, all three promises are just further fulfilled. Nothing can stop God's purpose to rescue the nations. And indeed, everything that evil does, attempting to stop it, simply serves it. What was the name of the second point? The Christ shape. Because the day is going to come, the real last-ditch effort to stop it, when the serpent will have the promised one, the chosen one, put to death on a cross. All the forces of evil conspiring to do their worst. And at that moment where it would look as though evil has successfully done its worst to put to an end God's plan to defeat that evil, it would in fact be the path along which evil would be defeated. Sarah at the birth of Isaac says, God has made laughter for me. In that we see a Christ shape. That yes, he would go to the grave, but the result would be laughter, gladness, rejoicing when on the third day he rises again from the dead. Brothers and sisters, I hope you're okay with this way of putting it, that you might feel less lonely. God is acting in these events, in these events to chase you down from all the nations of the world, to gather you from the nations as his people, to join you in fellowship with him. All of this, therefore, has that shape of the Christ. But we do not stop there. There is more. For the language of the New Testament, drawing deeply on uh, patterns and ways of speaking, though primarily patterns in the Old Testament, is that when you look to that Christ in faith, to the one promised to this line, the one who would come through Isaac, you are united to him. When you look to that Christ in faith, you belong to him. He is your head. You are the body. You are his. He is yours. And that means then that this whole story is yours. That you are then, by way of being united to that Christ, embedded within this story, embedded in these events, that this having the shape of Christ and you being united to Christ means then it gives shape to your life. So that we then, in Christ, having looked to him first, so we've asked the cosmic scope, the Christ shape, we have gone to Christ, we've seen his glory in these events, now we are swept up in them. We belong to them, we are in these events. And we then can see, in Abraham and Sarah, the shape of our experience as the covenant people of God. And so that thing I said a moment ago we should not do, Right? Boil it down to spiritual experience. How is that like my experience? Don't do that. Look to Christ. Is then what we are given even more richly when we have looked to Christ? Thirdly this morning then, the covenant richness of this story. There is a shape to God's dealings with his people. There is a pattern. There is a way things go that has never changed. There is a way things go in God's drawing his people to himself that is the same from Genesis to Revelation. 
And part of the beauty of story after story is identifying those patterns. We see that sameness. And in that sameness, we see not futility, but we see faithfulness. That in that sameness, the nothing new under the sun, we see not meaninglessness, we see a vapor indeed that we cannot grasp, we cannot control, but we see ultimately God's faithfulness to sustaining those patterns. So, let us then enjoy, delight in, the patterns of God's dealing with his people as they emerge in this account in Genesis 20 and 21. point we've seen many times. We're going to ask, all right, what are the patterns of God's way with his people? The way things go that does not change. We have before us absolutely reliable promises received by very weak faith. Absolutely reliable promises received by imperfect faith. Remember, what are we doing right now? Patterns. The way things go in God's dealings with his people, it has not changed. Absolutely reliable promises. Back in Genesis 18, when Sarah had, remember, she laughed to herself and God knew, what does God say? Is anything too hard for the Lord? One of the things being affirmed in this account is God's sovereignty, his his power, his control over all things, so that what he says he is able to do, and that there is nothing too great for him. Things that he promises us that are beyond our ability to comprehend, there is nothing too great for the creator. The one who called this universe into existence is able to set all things right. Reliable promises. This is the payoff of the account saying so little surrounding the birth of Isaac except this. 21 verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord said to Sarah as he had promised. Verse 2. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. We have said, promised, spoken. God's word is absolutely reliable. The word by which he created the universe is the word of promise, the word made flesh in Christ, the word that addresses us today. The pattern does not change. God's word is effective. He does what he promises. That reliable promise is received by imperfect faith. Is this not made ridiculously clear by Abraham's shenanigans with Abimelech? You're like, Abraham, you're doing it again. It wasn't that long ago. It was like, well, it was 25 years. So I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit a while ago, but you, you just went through this exact thing. Did you not learn a lesson? God has shown you so many things. He's been faithful so many times. You've learned so many lessons, and here you are being driven by fear again. That you might feel less lonely. Because it is that faith, it is that faith that receives the promise. Brothers and sisters, let that speak to you absolutely directly. God shows us this over and over and over, that the faith that looks to Christ, the glory of Christ proclaimed so beautifully in this account, will always be on this side of the new creation an imperfect faith. 
does that mean? Well, then, who cares about my faith or how I live? Of course not. Foolishness has destructive consequences. This is shown time and again in these accounts. Faithlessness has destructive consequences. So, okay, hold on, then what are we saying? What we're saying is, when you look at yourself and you realize your faith is weak, when you look at yourself and you see the things you do that has destructive consequences, the only answer is, look to Christ in faith. The only answer is look to the promises. And as you look to those promises and you are united to Christ, Christ by his spirit changes you. He strengthens that faith. He changes how you live. But the only way to get there is not looking at yourself. It is looking to the promise. And then through the promise, beholding the fruit of God's work in you. Absolutely reliable promises received by faith. What else do we see in the way things go, and the patterns, the cycles of God's dealing with his people. Well, another thing we see is the constant posture, necessity of waiting. We are told that Abraham is a hundred years old. Verse 5, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. We were told in Genesis 12, when all this promise business got started, that he was 25, or excuse me, 75, 25 years ago. Waiting. What was it that drove so much of Abraham's foolishness? Not wanting to be waiting. What was it that drives fear? The fact of the waiting seeming to contradict God's promise. What is it that tempts to ultimate paths of destruction? You know what I mean. Throwing up your hands, shaking your fist, that's it, I'm going another way. Feeling as though there's nothing you're waiting for. We can go down the list of the dangers that Abraham and Sarah faced the dangers that God faced, God's people face throughout Scripture, the dangers that God's people face at every point in the history of the world as being a failure to deal with the fact that we are waiting. God gave promises to Abraham at 75. It was 25 years till Isaac was born. Why? He's teaching something about a pattern, about a way things go, that there is something about movement through time, something about relationship through time, trust, relying on God through time. There's something about moving through seasons of life and moving through ups and downs and darkness and moving through trial as the path along faith is lived that is something God desires for his people. There's something he's doing through it. And we can see so many things he's doing. We can see You know, we can look at Abraham. That's why we can say, like, seriously, you're doing it again? Like, you should have learned that from the previous time. Okay, but this is what God is always doing. So much of our struggles, difficulties, miseries in the Christian life flow from a failure to embrace the fact that we are awaiting people, a people oriented toward the future, that God does not give us all of it right now but that we are called to live the whole arc of life, all the seasons of life, toward that future. Now, I'm saying that as something of of, of a a negative challenge, right? This is a difficult thing we are up against, and God's Word uh, 
is challenging us to persevere through it. But it's also highlighting something good. That that movement through time, that waiting, is a created good. That time was a thing. The reality of time was a thing before the fall. That a world moving toward a greater future was a thing before the fall into sin. That what we see of the new creation in Revelation is greater than the creation of Genesis. And so movement through time is itself a good thing. I want to encourage you with that from Genesis 20 and 21. Because this side of the curse, this side of the fall, they get all blurred together. Movement through time is just kind of scary. Things decay. We know what it's headed toward. There's death over there. We know that. And so movement through time can take on a purely fearful character. But these sorts of accounts reveal to us that movement through time is something God is using. It is the way His purposes come to fulfillment. It is the way He does what He has promised. And that that movement through time is something deeply, fundamentally good. It is a created good, and it is something He is using on this side of the curse for His purposes of promise and redemption. You are waiting And that is joyful good news because God has promised you what you are waiting for. And that's the final thing we see in our text as the way things go. God's patterns, God's dealings with his people in the life of the covenant. The words of Sarah, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Isaac is named Isaac, meaning he laughs. Back when Sarah heard the angel of the Lord giving the promise to Abraham, and she wasn't there, but she hears it, and she laughs to herself. And then God says, why did you laugh? And then she says, I didn't laugh. And God says, but you did laugh. There are some who hear in that, but you did laugh, a kind of promise, saying to Sarah, don't forget your laughter, actually, because you're going to need that later. That's going to that's gonna come up again. And in the pattern of things, there is a season where the laughter is a laughter of, I don't see it. A laughter of, how can it be? A laughter of, can God do this? A laughter of, why is it going this way? A laughter that's tempted toward faithlessness. But that God promises in the way things go, in the pattern of things, that that leads to laughter. That it leads to joy and gladness on the side of God fulfilling His promises and at the other end of moving through time, God doing what He said He would do. This is what we have highlighted. This is not just an interesting, esoteric, abstract point you pull out if you know, you're a weirdo and how you read these things. His name is He Left. That's the name given to the Son. The laughter is the message. God's saying, here is what I bring. Here is what I do. Here is what time heads toward. This is the shape of Sarah's life. Movement from weeping, laughter tempted to be faithless, to joyful, glad laughter. It is the shape of Sarah's life because it is given its shape by the Son of God. That this is the shape of the Son. We've already identified this. That the very shape of Christ's way through the world, of the eternal Son of God's path through an arc of time in this creation would be the shape of suffering and death leading to resurrection and joy and laughter. To festive meals with His disciples. The pattern was of waiting. Three days in the grave. Waiting 
leading to laughter. It is the shape of the sun that we see in this account. And because it is the shape of the sun who gave his shape to the shape of Sarah's life, it is the shape of your life. Because you are united to Christ by faith. Genesis 21 verses 1 through 7 would tell us that one of the ways we should summarize what Revelation 21 and 22 promise is laughter. We sang a moment ago, for all the saints, steals on the ear the distant triumph song. In the time of waiting, it feels distant. And in the time of waiting, the thing one is waiting for can so often feel like it slips away. You're not pushing it away. You're not wanting it to go away. It slips out of your fingers. The promise of God is absolutely reliable, even when waiting feels that way. And he sets before you the promise of along that path of waiting, laughter. The movement through time is good. It is deeply good. And God's purpose for you, his promise for you, as those who are united to this Christ by faith, to the Christ who gave shape to these events, that his promise is for your laughter in the new creation to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to be a people who are faithfully waiting, who cling to your promises by imperfect faith, and who live in the present in the light of that promised future. Oh, Father, these things are great and glorious. It so often feels like they so easily slip away. And so we pray that you would be present with us by your Spirit to strengthen and encourage this faith. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.